Hey listeners, because this episode is about obituary writing, it contains discussions of death and a few references to self-harm. It may not be appropriate for everyone. The first time I came face to face with Toni Morrison was in Maya Angelou's backyard for a gathering of some of the most illustrious black people you've ever heard of. Not only did he help people that last day, but his entire career and his entire life. When I have imagined speaking to a group of people about Kobe Bryant, I usually picture in the context of his Hall of Fame induction or as a guest speaker at one of Kobe and Vanessa's foundation event. But never ever could I have imagined that I'd be here today speaking at his memorial. And it pains me to my core. We're learning the cause of death tonight of Ivana Trump. The medical examiner says she died from blunt impact injuries to her torso after a fall. Her death has been ruled an accident. Trump, the first wife of former President Donald Trump and the mother of his three eldest children, was found dead at her home yesterday. She was 73 years old. You know, they get through high school and graduate and you think, you've done a good job. Anyways, uh, we got through high school and... Lily Shu was many things. She was a mother and a respected community dentist, but it was through her passion for ballet where friends say she was gracefully chasing a childhood dream. The day before he died, David Crosby tweeted about heaven. I heard the place is overrated, cloudy, but Crosby was never known for his subtlety. Do you ever wonder why you are still alive? I don't know. No idea, man. Why am I still here? Isn't that always the unspoken question when we hear about the death of a loved one, a stranger, or a celebrity? Someone who we identify with or feel we know because we have loved their art, their political, or their activist accomplishments. We could be one of many fans, or perhaps the only friend or a family member who wanted just a little more time. There are different ways of hearing about death, although today it is very rare to get a phone call even about an acquaintance or an old school friend. Instead, we have grown used to an abrupt notice on Facebook, a digital poster that sprays the knowledge around, hoping to get to the right people. The deaths of celebrities, politicians, cultural giants, or strangers murdered by the police, or by yet other strangers, also arrives electronically. It's a ping on our phones, a trending topic on Twitter, an Apple News item flashing across our email inbox. But hearing about death is different from sitting with it, deriving meaning from it, exploring the path of a life in relation to what it reveals about our nation, our time, and our culture. That is the work of the obituary writer, a skilled journalist who writes miniature biographies, micro-histories of lives that have sometimes come to a peaceful and anticipated end, others where death has been staved off until it wouldn't take no for an answer and still others cut off in rude, random acts, a helicopter crash, a physical attack, an overdose. As I confess in this episode, when I open the newspaper in the morning, I turn to the obituaries first. It's not because I'm getting older, although I am. It isn't because I'm morbid or fascinated by death or even worried about my own exit from the planet. It's because I'm a historian. Obituaries are integral to my work. Is there a collection of letters and memorabilia that I want to peek at? Is this a life that should be in whatever book I am writing? 
But also, obituaries are a form of historical writing, 1,200 to 1,500 word narratives that not only illuminate a life, but also our century. This is why I asked my friend Clay Risen, an obituaries reporter at the New York Times, to come on the show to talk about obituary writing as a historical genre. Clay is a political historian and a prolific writer. In addition to writing about whiskey, he is the author of The Crowded Hour, Teddy Roosevelt, The Rough Riders, and The Dawn of the American Century, a New York Times notable book in 2019 and a finalist for the Gilder Lehrman Prize in Military History. He's also the author of A Nation on Fire, America in the Wake of the King Assassination, and The Bill of the Century, The Epic Battle for the Civil Rights Act. Join Clay and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 11, You Are Dead to Me. Clay Risen, thank you so much for coming on Why Now? Thanks for having me. We're here to talk about obituaries as a historical genre. I know it's kind of a downer, but I think they're fascinating. The first thing I read in the New York Times every morning is the obituaries. Do you think there are a lot of people like that? I do. You know, the the death is often the least important or least interesting part of the story. It's uh, it's just a peg for telling someone's life story and telling the context of that of that story. So, you know, I think that's what people really zero in on, not the who died of what or, you know, or how do they die or all those details. Right. Although sometimes it worries me when people die too young and, you know, I start sort of taking my blood pressure and so on. But I'd like to start with what an obituary is. It's not a death notice, which is factual and sometimes has a legal function. And it's not a memorial, which is often written by family members and often appears as a paid advertisement or a text on a website sponsored by a funeral home. So could you tell our listeners what is an obituary and why are obituaries an important news function for a national paper like the New York Times? Yeah, well, I think obituaries, at least the way that we do them, play a pretty unique function in terms of the news production. Most of the time, they're not breaking news. You know, if someone really famous dies, we'll want to rush to get that out. But most of the time, when someone passes away, uh, if we don't have uh, an obituary prepared for them, it means that we set off on you know, a historical journey. I mean, it becomes a project, not just to tell the life story of somebody or to kind of give them, give their CV, so to speak, but really to tell the context in which they lived, to try to place them within that context and, and use them really as a way to tell a bigger story. I think the really successful obituaries are the ones that do focus on individuals, obviously, but really use them as kind of the, using their lives as a structure to tell a bigger story about, it could be anything, a technology, a, um, a, a movement, uh, a political moment. And, you know, the way that I look at obituaries as works of history is, you know, they are in and of themselves, these little micro histories, but they all fit together into a mosaic. 
And so each one's a little picture. And so, you know, it's sort of like those pictures that are made up of tiny little pictures. Sometimes I think of them in that way, that if you take a, if you were to read all of our obituaries and you take a step back, you would get a pretty big, good picture of a period of time, a part of the country, a, a movement, what have you. So tell me, how did you, as a reporter and an editor at the New York Times, become an obituary writer? The way I became an obituary writer was sort of happenstance. I mean, I was coming off of an editing job working on the 2020 campaign, and, and I had been working on the op-ed desk before that. I had been a reporter on the side, uh, doing a lot of freelance writing, but I'd never had a, a straight reporting gig. The need was there, though, for someone just to step in and help out writing obituaries. And so uh, whether it was wise on their part or desperation or whatever, uh, they tagged me to go in and spend some time writing obituaries. And it's it was a form that I'd always admired. It was a part of this paper that I was always fascinated with. I mean, like a lot of other people, I always read the obituaries. And it was love at first sight. I mean, as soon as I started doing it, I loved big media obituaries. I loved small, intimate obituaries. I loved obituaries that required a huge amount of legwork, obituaries that were more about taking what's out there already and just kind of casting a narrative. The challenges of each obituary kept me fresh, kept me really interested. Every, every obituary is different because obviously every person is different. So when my, when my time was up, at obituaries, I sort of said, well, you know, can I stick around, please? And uh, my, my boss said yes, and, and the higher-ups in the paper said yes. And so here I am, and I don't, uh, I don't know. There may be some other jobs at the paper that I'd rather do, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. Uh, this has been a wonderful job. And, and so to the question about what are the, the joys of uh, the job, I mean, I think I am lucky in that I enjoy both the research and the writing aspect. The research side can be a lot of legwork, a lot of just digging into weird directories, trying to find people, trying to find next of kin, trying to find little, trying to find answers to questions that come up. Also, it can mean trying to understand very quickly an entire world of knowledge or some experience. I wrote a obituary recently on the world's most prolific cave explorer. Well, I don't, I don't know anything about caves, but I learned a lot very quickly enough to write an obituary. And it's it's like that. But then I've turned around and uh, I'll do uh, write about a philosopher or write about a, a poet or what have you. Uh, jazz music. I've learned a lot about jazz, which I didn't know before, but I, for some reason, I'm kind of the B team for jazz musicians. And so I've learned a lot. That is so much fun. And then the writing is great because the obituaries, I think partly because of who the editors are, but also just, I think the form, you can chew the writing a little bit more than you can with some of the news stories. You know, a lot of times with news stories, it really gets pared down to the the basics of journalism. Whereas with obituaries, you can really kind of swing for the fences with some uh, nice writing, let's say. I have gotten puns into my obituaries that while appropriate for the obituary, are almost never allowed in the paper. But obituaries, puns are okay if it if it works. So, you know, the, the downers are, frankly, it, sometimes you come pretty close to the, the realities of someone's death. And um, it can be a real challenge. Even as much as I talk about, oh, these are portraits of people's lives and we should experience them as celebrations, dealing with next of kin can be pretty... Um, 
pretty tough sometimes. And one of the things that they look for in obituary writers is people who, because of personal experience and, and also just because of their sort of nature and personality, uh, are able to come to people who are grieving with an open approach uh, to be fair and honest with them. I mean, we're not doing gotcha journalism. We're not doing, we're not trying to steal quotes or get someone to say the say something that we can then put in the paper and embarrass them or I, I, no one does that. But, you know, the stereotypes of some of other types of journalism, we're very much the opposite of that. Having a bedside manner is the easy way to put it, but also being able to kind of set it all aside. The really tough ones I've written about people who have died by suicide, and that can be difficult dealing with people who have died young or relatively young. Uh, people who have left young children behind. I mean, these things are unavoidable when you're when you're writing, and it's kind of un- it would be very difficult to not uh, not be affected by those stories. It's interesting you should say that because, of course, we're both historians, and when you are a historian, you write about the dead routinely, but their death is is an abstraction on a certain level, even though we get to know them very well as we write about them, and. You know, you've written a celebrated history of Theodore Roosevelt's participation in the Spanish-American War. You've written about the assassination of Martin Luther King. You've written about the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. How do you see your role as a historian playing out as someone who now writes obituaries? I mean, how do you make that direct connection between your historical work and your work as a reporter? So... And there's sort of three things. I mean, the first is that I see this as history writing in and of itself. I see this as an endeavor that is, yes, using a news event as a focus, but everything that goes into it is history. So I'm writing these little stories, uh, which may not be little, they may be maybe sweeping, but you know, they're relatively short. And that in and of itself, I, I try to bring a historian's point of view to that to that sort of endeavor and and really using a lot of the tools and skills that I at least think I have are you know, archival work balancing sources assessing the meaning of sources uh, which in a lot of cases may not uh, be readily apparent you know the value of them how do you take people's oral testimony when people I interview how do you weigh that against the historical record all these things that historians deal with I deal with as well in, in my obituary writing. But then, you know, I also think that it is a service to other historians. I think that when we're writing about people, we're writing about people who have, uh, at least by our judgment, some significance. Either they invented something or they they were politically resonant or they were a writer, you know, whatever their claim is. And may or may not someday be of use to a writer, a historian in the future. But what hopefully a historian in the future will find when they get to one of my obituaries is, you know, not only here is the A to Z facts about somebody, where they were born, what their parents' names were, but also something about the moment that they existed in and to kind of try to plug that in so that if, depending on what a historian is working on, they'll be able to say, well, oh, here is how that person fits into the story that I'm working on. And there will be maybe some other elements that historians in the future can pursue. There's also um, a very important testimonial role that we play because 
frankly, as much as I'd like to think that every one of my pieces will be picked up and used by many historians in the future, uh, the fact is most of them won't. And this may be the last time that anyone ever writes about a person, you know, one of my subjects. And so this is the history of that person. And maybe family members in the you know, way down in the future will turn to it to understand their family. But, you know, in the sense that no one who is remembered is ever truly dead, I like to think that there's something akin to that going on when we write obituaries. And that's a form of history writing that I think is maybe, you know, can sometimes be uh, overlooked or underappreciated. Yeah, I think it's really important. Or maybe that's, that's a function of this kind of history writing, this kind of micro histories of people. Uh, I think there's a, there's kind of a sacral element to it that I take very seriously. That's really important. And I just sort of want to back you up. When I was a graduate student, one of the things I learned when I was writing was to go to an obituary first when I was introducing a character into my book um, so that I made sure that I actually had the trajectory of their life correct. And I mean, the New York Times, uh, as anyone who has ever been fact-checked there knows, is very, very strict about getting the story right. And so knowing that there is a source that you can always go to is important. But a couple of years ago, the Times acknowledged that actually they hadn't done due diligence in the past in terms of getting all of the important people into the record that they could have. And they launched a project to write obituaries retrospectively, accounts of significant people who, because of race or gender, were not seen as important by a powerful newspaper in the past. I think it's called the Overlooked Project. Can you speak to the question of the significance of a newspaper acknowledging its historical errors? Yeah, well, I think it was uh, it was and, and remains uh, an amazing project. And the editors who, who started it and continue to work on it, Amy Padnani is the editor who oversees it. It was her her idea and, and her um, her leadership that made it happen. And I, I think that it is exactly as you said, it's an important way for us to recognize that, yes, we have always claimed to be the newspaper of record, but the record is a somewhat subjective or biased interpretation of the of the moment and uh, and of the past. And so what does it mean in 2022 now to look back and say, well, what what did we think the record was? How did we structure the record to privilege certain people and not others? What constituted news and how did we construct that as something objective when, in fact, it it really wasn't. And so there are lots of ways to get at that. And, and other papers have done different, you know, done it differently in terms of looking at the way that they've, say, written about race in the past, the way they've written about politics in the past. And I think for obituaries, it's it's one way for us to get in and say, here are individuals that by virtue of our reconstruction, we can demonstrate that these are people who really were significant at the time. And, you know, we don't make a broader claim about why was this person not included. I think that would that would be a whole other level of introspection. But what we simply do is say, well, this person should have been should have been included. And and we think we can write that by including them now. Well, and, and one of the people who was included in the Overlooked Project was Ida B. Wells. And I remember reading that and thinking how difficult it must be to write an obituary about somebody about whom a great deal has been written. A lot has been written about Ida B. Wells. So how is the how is the process different 
when it's someone who has been overlooked and the Times is returning to them 100 years later or 50 years later? Yeah, I mean, there it becomes, you know, review of the publications kind of, I mean, almost, uh, you know, assessing what is out there. Uh, and I, I personally haven't had to do anything quite like that. Uh, the overlooks that I've done have been people who were over, have been overlooked ever since um, or, or just kind of marginalized ever since. But I imagine that it's, uh, that it is uh, about just sort of taking the weight of someone's uh, someone's past and, and then also taking some account of the posthumous story as well. I mean, I think that's true with all the overlooks that we do uh, to some extent or another is, you know, ask whether this person has had a, a kind of posthumous history. How were they recognized, if at all, over the course of time since they passed away? Obviously with Ida B. Wells, very recognized and probably contested in a lot of ways. So how do you incorporate that? Uh, whereas others, you know, maybe they were remembered with a monument, but sort of forgotten. Maybe there was a boom in their their remembrance at some point. But you want to track all of that, because I think that's also part of the story that we're trying to tell. Well, and, and the other side of this is that there are sometimes things that people would prefer to keep private or that family members would prefer to keep private that don't appear in obituary. I'm thinking specifically of gay and lesbian sexuality, which is revealed much more now than it used to be. But whenever I see, for example, in an obituary that someone has left no immediate survivors or that they remain unmarried, but they have siblings and nieces and nephews, my mind always goes to that place. So what's mm -hmm. the balance between respecting people's privacy and accuracy in these miniature histories? The first thing is you have an obligation to the facts. If it can't be proven beyond a shadow of doubt that this, you know, whatever you're going to say is in fact the case, leave it out. There's no speculation. And that goes to uh, sources as well. I mean, even if someone said, even if I talked to five people who said, yeah, I'm pretty sure that he was gay. I don't think I would include that unless that person themselves had said, yes, I am. I am a gay man, partly because that's all supposition, but also because I think that that's a pretty good indicator of what their own identity was, where they were. And I would never want to be in the position of outing somebody or or just saying something about their identity or, or their past that they don't want told. But it is very much a judgment call. It's very hard. And I think on the other hand, obviously, if if that if you have someone like, let's say, Roy Cohn, Roy Cohn's sexuality was a big part of his story, even though he was always a little, you know, often very uh, hard to pin down on that. But you can't ignore it because that's so much a part of the story of Roy Cohn. So I don't want to say that there's one rule for everybody, but I think that you do have to be very, very careful. And I think this is, again, where obituaries is a little different from the rest of the news desk. I at least will will defer more to the wishes of the family or what I can deduce of the wishes of the deceased. Uh, if there's not a strong news case for stating something, then I won't, even if I know it, because if it's just some small fact, you know, sometimes people will say, look, this guy had a brother. They were uh, separated. You know, they were um, estranged. Uh, he really didn't like his brother and he would just doesn't want him mentioned in the obituary. You know, that's one where 
I might not pursue that too much. If I know the name, I might put it in. But also, if it's not relevant really to the story I'm trying to tell about this person, I would take that into account. Whereas I think if I were on a different desk, um, on a you know another news desk, I, I would know that's a fact that needs to be in there. Uh, that's I wouldn't necessarily think twice. But but I do think that with obituaries, there's there is a certain amount of deferential treatment that that we owe to uh, to the families and, and to the memory of those of those people. And it sounds like empathy um, is is something that needs to be at the front of your mind too. It, it it absolutely is, and and you know I think this is one where you often will have discussions with other reporters about well what is what is the role of empathy because empathy can be uh, if you're a really hard nosed reporter uh, empathy can be distorting you know if empathy leads you to maybe leave something out well that is uh, from one point of view not doing the job of the reporter on the other hand. I think empathy is is very important when it comes to especially this kind of reporting. Now, where I draw the line is reading into my articles anyone's particular storyline about themselves. So I reported on people who uh, have done not great things in their lives. Maybe uh, they have a criminal record or they have uh, you know a demonstrated record of just being less than virtuous. And a lot of times those people will have, you know, their stories, especially if they're not convicted of something, but they're known to have done things that maybe most people would not uh, aspire to follow. Uh, but I'm not going to follow their line simply because that's how they want to be remembered. I will still be very objective about that. The empathy, I think, comes on the edges, you know, to go back to death by suicide. I mean, this is one where it's happened where I've known off the record that someone has died by suicide, but it's not reported in other sources. And it's become a, a point of conversation with, with next of kin. You know, I know this, I can't say it, but will you permit me to say it? I will say I, I haven't done a lot of deaths by suicide, but in every case, we've come to an agreement that there is a right way to talk about it. And that's one where I think there's a strong case in both directions. I think if someone says, look, this person died by suicide, we're, we as a family are not ready to talk about that fact. You know, we will have a conversation. And, and at the end of the day, I, I, I can be persuaded to leave that out. That said, I will always make the strong case that it is in that there's a strong public interest for people to know that someone died by suicide, uh, if only to hear those stories. I don't, I mean, I'm personally of the belief that it shouldn't be, uh, it should be destigmatized. Um, we need to be able to talk about mental health. We need to be able to talk about death by suicide, uh, but there's a right way to talk about it and a wrong way to talk about it. We at the times in the obituary section, I've gone back and looked at the way that we've talked about death by suicide over the years. And it used to be something that we would report in very lurid terms, frankly, often borderline offensive ways. Whereas today, it's much more about treating it as the result of an illness, not getting into details, but being able to sh talk about it in a way that allows, hopefully allows readers who are in some, you know, maybe considering suicide or, or, or are very sensitive to it, to, to maybe think about it a little differently, or, or at least to, to find solace or something. It's, it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and, and, and hopefully hopefully get it kind of right. 
listening to you, I'm thinking about the 1980s, where for the first few years of the AIDS crisis, no one was ever reported as having died of AIDS. And, yeah. you know, once once that started happening, it really sort of brought the whole question of, of the shame that families often felt about that to the fore. And, and it normalized it. And I think, you know, similarly... Um, the fact that people, people's gay and lesbian partners are now mentioned or their spouses are now mentioned normalizes um, a certain kind of social arrangement that was stigmatized before. So, so I think you're absolutely right about that. You know, I always assume that the euphemism, the cause of death was not immediately available. Sometimes it's not immediately available, but that's also sometimes a way of, of punting. It it is. I've personally. I mean, this is. I, I I'm building all this up hypothetically. I've actually never punted on the cause. Of, I've always either known it and reported it, or really just didn't know. I can't speak for all my colleagues, but my guess is that's kind of the case for everyone. Partly because we like to be very specific, and oftentimes we're dealing with people who, at the end of their life, may have multiple ailments. Uh, they may have cancer and diabetes and what ultimately was the cause may or may not be known. Oftentimes there's no, there's no autopsy, you know, so we might then use what sounds like a euphemism. We may just say uh, this person was um, in declining health for many years. And sometimes that's just the case. I mean, that's, there's nothing more specific than that. Their bodies are giving out and they may have some specific ailments, but at the end of the day, their bodies just quit. And there's no cancer or car accident or some really clear, concrete cause. It just happens. But I hear you, and I hear this from people a lot when they say, hey, this you were kind of vague about what caused this person's death. Was, was it something really lurid that you don't want to talk about? No. Uh, again, for me personally, I've never been in that case, uh, even though I, I recognize that that hypothetical could happen. Yeah. And of course, the obituaries I like reading least are the obituaries of people who are younger than me. Um, <laughs> that that always strikes me as wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, particularly alarming. So, Clay, what is the most challenging obituary you have ever written? The most challenging? Well, I mean, there are a couple. One of them was challenging because it had to be written very fast. So we got news. This was over the summer. My boss called me on a, I think it was Wednesday afternoon, and he said, uh, we have word that Ivana Trump has died, and we don't have an obituary. Uh, obviously, Ivana Trump's going to get a big obituary. We're getting confirmation, but we want you to write it. So I had to write, first of all, you know, 200, 300 words just to get the news out. And then from there, start to build on it until we got about 2,000 words. I know probably as much as anyone else about Ivana Trump, which is what I remember growing up, not not a whole lot of detail. Uh, so I had to scramble to get, first of all, all the details of her life, but then also a lot of the material that made it, uh, that put meat on those bones. It was, real, it was really fun, but incredibly stressful because I had to have it in two hours. And we broke the story. I mean, we were the first ones to announce it. And so to be in the middle of that in the newsroom, and also I was working remotely that day. So to see people popping into my, we have a 
content management system and you can see who's reading and which top editors are reading the material and and who's uh, and then I'm getting sent material supporting material from different reporters. Uh, it was great. I mean, everything worked. It was a fantastic. I, when I finished, it, I felt like I had run a marathon. But, and I've done that a few other times with real breaking news. The other one that was really tough was I did this obituary back not too long after I started. And it was about a fellow who we had a, well, we had a special kind of hotline, so to speak, or an email inbox, where if you had a loved one who died of COVID, or if you knew someone who died of COVID, you could write in and say, hey, you should write about this person. We had a whole special section of just obituaries for people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have gotten an obituary, but were because they got COVID and because we wanted to give a portrait of what things look like out there. We we were writing these, so a lot. Of, so I did a lot of these where you know they were, frankly, just kind of you know everyday folks, you and me, and you know folks like that. But then there was one guy that we got, and his daughter wrote in with this this crazy story about how he had been born in Poland uh, in the late 30s. Uh, he had uh, escaped the the Nazis and lived in the woods. And ended up in a displaced persons camp and came to the U.S. with his father. And he became a he became a high profile architect, but then quit and became a hippie, and then came back and went to work in a humdrum job for the city and ended up just had this life that she told in in a pretty short proceed, and then having to track it all down and to tell this story that that ended up being to me kind of this story of this arc through the second half of the 20th century. As soon as I got the assignment, I sort of felt like, wow, if we can prove all this, if I can dig all this up, this will be wonderful. But of course, it's his daughter. And how do I know that she remembers everything correctly? How do I know she's telling the truth? So I did all this work in um, you know, Jewish archives, Holocaust archives, uh, finding out about the buildings he designed, finding out about kind of the communes that he lived in out West. And it became this kind of uh, a real rabbit hole for me. I just kept digging and digging because there was all this stuff. Uh, there were none of the standard clip files or archives that I could turn to to kind of get easy information about this guy. It was all about tracking down his childhood friends, tracking down the people he lived with out West. But it ended up being, for me, uh, a, just a really satisfying obituary in that I could tell this story about this guy who lived this amazing life, even though he wasn't anyone that the average person had ever heard of. But it took me about three weeks to do. And normally my obituaries, you know, it's a day or two. But this one I spent a lot of time working on. And honestly, I could have written a book about this guy. It ended up being 1,500 words. But I'd say that was my hardest. That was the one I enjoyed the work, uh, where I enjoyed the work the most. Well, and it's it's a real example of how, on a certain level, everybody's living a piece of history. And oh, yeah. um, once you dig into it, you can figure out what what is it that they reveal about our times. So, so Clay, I always end these interviews um, with a question about why now, and and I guess my question for you is why should people read the obituaries now? I would give a couple of reasons. I, first is no one reads history anymore. So they should, at the very least, read the obituaries. It's a little bit of history. I think anything that 
can contextualize our moment, even if it's not immediately contextualizing, even something that says, hey, it's not all about the leading edge. It's not all about the eternal present. Everyone out there has a past and everyone has lived the past collectively. And if you read the obituaries, I think it's a very an easy way to kind of get an appreciation for the the kind of relationship between the present and the past, if you will, that here we are, we're living, this person just died. And yet here's the story that, that takes us back right away to the 1950s in Boston or 1960s rock scene or whatever. And that's all still with us. And I think that at least for me, working on obituaries really gives me an appreciation for the importance of that and a window or a, an opportunity to kind of step away from the Twitter feeds and the Facebook feeds and and TikTok and whatever's out there that's just obsessing me at the moment and to sort of understand that there are lives and stories that may be adjacent to me physically, but I'm very unaware of until I, until I read the obituary. So there's something, I guess this is a long way of saying there's something uh, very humanizing and very humanistic about obituaries so that, that they, that they round out uh, your daily life, daily experience of life just by reading them. And, and hopefully, hopefully we'll give you entree into worlds that you've never thought about. I've learned so much and, and I've, I've, uh, I've found new interests based on obituaries, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, new books, new genres, new angles of history that I hadn't really been interested in before woodworking. Uh, I'm not a woodworker and probably never will be, but I'm much more fascinated by woodworking than I was simply because I wrote an obituary about a woman who was a, a well-known woodworker. And it got me, again, into this rabbit hole where all of a sudden this is fascinating. Wow, there's this whole world around woodworking. Obviously, I knew that in a way, but I got to really dig into it. And, and it just, I don't know, I feel fuller and rounder uh, because of that. And that's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time. As I mentioned, that could be a rough episode for some people. 
So if you or someone you know is struggling with self-harm, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255, and you can call 24 hours a day.